1, The Republic, written and narrated by Christopher Vale, theme song Lionheart by John Wright. Book available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com. Chapter 8 To the Last Extremity When Benjamin Franklin boarded the ship in London to return to Philadelphia, he did so with a heavy heart. For 18 years, Franklin had lived in England as a representative of several colonies. As the recent tensions between England and her colonies flared, he tried desperately to work for peace, to convince the British to step back from the brink before it was too late. Following the Boston Tea Party, however, the Parliament had been too enraged to act sensibly. The colonists' allies in Parliament did their best to talk sense into their fellows, but they were shouted down by those spitting fire and venom at the colonies. Franklin wrote that the Parliament viewed Americans, himself included, with the utmost contempt as the lowest of mankind and almost a different species than the English of Britain. There was nothing more Franklin could do to help his country avoid war, so he left London to finally return home to Philadelphia. It would be a lonely homecoming, however. His beloved wife, Deborah, had died in December of 1774 after suffering a stroke. His son, William, had been appointed royal governor of New Jersey in 1763, and to his father's great disappointment, chose to remain loyal to the king. Before leaving Britain, Franklin expressed his fear of the onset of military hostilities. When he landed in Philadelphia in May of 1775, he quickly learned that those fears had come true on Lexington Green a month earlier. His sister Jane had fled Boston and wrote to her brother apprising him of the situation, answering his earlier letter where he promised that the stormy weather could not last forever. I believe you did not then imagine the storm would have arisen so high as for the general to have sent out a party to creep out in the night and slaughtering our dear brethren for endeavoring to defend our own property, she wrote. But God appeared for us and drove them back with much greater loss than they are willing to own. Franklin was ready to retire when he returned to Philadelphia, but the Pennsylvania Assembly had other plans for him. He had not even been back for 24 hours when the assembly elected him as a delegate to the Continental Congress. The delegates were already arriving in Philadelphia, so Franklin went straight to work. When Franklin joined the Second Continental Congress, everyone was surprised to see him. But the man they most waited for 
was George Washington. War had begun, and Colonel Washington was the American colony's most famous soldier, though Washington himself admitted that he was not the most sophisticated delegate in matters of English politics, he still held firm on American rights proclaiming that an innate spirit of freedom first told me that the measures which the British administration hath for some time been, and now are, most violently pursuing, are repugnant to every principle of natural justice. Washington arrived at the Congress adorned in his blue and red uniform, and standing a head taller than anyone else in the room. He was quiet and modest, but by all appearances sought command of any military force the Congress might authorize. And who better for the post? Certainly none of the other members of the Congress had Washington's military credentials. There were a few other possible candidates, such as Horatio Gates and Charles Lee, both former officers in the British Army. However, not only was Washington more famous throughout the colonies than either Lee or Gates, but he was an American by birth. Gates and Lee were both born in England and had only moved to Virginia in the last few years. Washington was respected throughout the colonies. In fact, he was quickly becoming a desperately needed symbol of intercontinental unity. And when his chariot finally reached Philadelphia, it was escorted into the city by 500 horsemen. Thus, to no one's great surprise, on June 15, 1775, Washington was unanimously elected commander-in-chief of the newly formed Continental Army. Washington responded to the election, stating humbly, I this day declare with the utmost sincerity that I do not think myself equal to the command I am honored with. This was probably not feigned modesty. Though most historians believe he wanted the job, General Washington realized he had an enormous task before him. In fact, his letters made it clear that he was concerned with what would happen to his reputation if he were defeated, and he knew that he most likely would be defeated. While now more mature and no longer seeking the military glory he had sought in his youth, his honor still precluded him from turning down what he knew was a nearly impossible assignment. He had to take a ragtag group of untrained volunteers and undisciplined militia and somehow defeat the most powerful military force on the planet. The British Army had been badly bloodied back in April and retreated to safety in Boston. The colonial militia had placed the city under siege, pinning the British inside, but General Gage was not ready to surrender and sail back over the Atlantic. Far from it. In fact, about the same time the Continental Congress was naming Washington Commander-in-Chief of the Army, the British were making plans to move into the unoccupied positions of Breed's Hill and Bunker Hill overlooking the city. American spies within the city got word to the Colonials and they quickly occupied those positions before the British could. During the night of June 16th, the militia moved into position under cover of darkness. When dawn broke, the HMS Lively noticed the Colonials and opened fire on their positions. The cannon fire woke General Gage, who was already losing sleep over the concerns of the spreading rebellion and finding ways to feed everyone in the besieged city. Gage quickly summoned Generals Howe, Clinton, and Burgoyne as counsel. After much discussion, Gage decided to land on Moulton's Point while the Navy bombarded the American positions and from there assault the hills. Unfortunately for the British, the tide was out, 
and thus the landing on the point could not take place until it came in that afternoon, giving the militia more time to prepare their defenses. Around noon, on June 17, 1775, just two days after Washington had been elected commander-in-chief, General Howe led 1,500 British troops in 28 large barges from Boston to Moulton's Point. As Howe's troops moved into position, nearly 100 cannons from the Royal Navy and British artillery pounded the American positions. Once they had landed, the British marched up the hills toward the American militia. While history has remembered the engagement as the Battle of Bunker Hill, most of the fighting actually occurred on Breed's Hill. It was a slaughter. The American militia stood their ground as long as they had ammunition, firing volley after volley at the British regulars, annihilating the King's soldiers. Unfortunately for the Americans, they fired so many rounds that they eventually ran out of powder and shot and were forced to give up the ground. The British had won the day, but at an enormous cost. 226 British troops lay dead on the hillsides, with another 828 wounded. The Americans had less than a third of the British casualties, with 140 dead and only 271 wounded. Two weeks after the battle, General Washington arrived to take command of the forces surrounding Boston. As more and more militia from the other colonies poured into Massachusetts, Washington set about the task of molding them into a single continental army. Washington's concerns that his abilities and experience were not enough for such a daunting task were not shared by his contemporaries. He was given nearly king-like status among the Congress and people who referred to him as His Excellency. Yet from the very beginning of his command, Washington insisted that his mandate was dependent upon and subordinate to the will of the people and their representatives in the Continental Congress. Submission to the people by military commanders is standard in America, thanks largely to Washington's example, but is really quite unique in the history of the world. From Julius Caesar to Napoleon Bonaparte to Mao Zedong, popular generals have seized the reins of power. Washington spent the remainder of 1775 training his men and improving his fortifications. However, by early 1776, he realized that he could never force the British to an accommodation, much less win the war, by continuing the siege of Boston indefinitely. He wanted a bold move. If the Continental Army could take the city, that might force the British to accommodate the Americans. He summoned his war council and asked their advice. The council wisely cautioned against attacking the heavily fortified city. However, they did support a more cautious plan, similar to the strategy that had worked so well at Bunker Hill. So, with a view of drawing out the enemy, Washington and his men made plans to occupy Dorchester Heights. The strategy was brilliant, thanks to the earlier efforts of Colonel Ethan Allen of Vermont and a cocky up-and-comer named Benedict Arnold. With only 200 volunteers, the two men had managed to capture Fort Ticonderoga in New York for the rebels. The fort gave the colonists very little strategic value, but it did supply them with heavy guns. Back in November of 1775, Washington had dispatched Colonel Henry Knox with an expedition into the wilderness to retrieve the guns and bring them back to Cambridge. Using horses, oxen, and American willpower, Knox and his men traversed hundreds of miles in the dead of winter, over frozen rivers, 
through swamps, and along poorly managed roads to finally reach Cambridge, Massachusetts three months later. Washington wanted the heavy guns positioned on Dorchester Heights because from that point, he would be able to shell anywhere in the city or the harbor. Thus, the British would be forced to either remove the Continentals from their position or evacuate the city. In other words, the British would march into a slaughter or they would cede Boston to the Americans. The plan to occupy the Dorchester Heights was similar to the one executed at Bunker and Breed's Hills. They would occupy the Heights in a single night before the British figured out what was happening. Unfortunately, it was early March and the ground was frozen. Thus, it would be impossible to dig trenches and construct breastworks in one night without making considerable noise. So, Washington devised a sophisticated scheme to construct fortifications elsewhere, out of sight of the enemy and then haul them up the hill with the men and oxen to have the fortifications in place and ready for a British assault the following morning. To cover up the noise from the construction, the men fired night barrages, and to conceal their movements, they erected a barrier of hay bales. Moving the fortifications into position was going to be a massive job, and Washington sent his men out into the countryside to round up as many wagons, carts, and oxen as they could find. By the time the Americans were ready to occupy the heights, they had assembled 800 oxen. Washington needed more men, as he hoped to occupy the heights with 3,000 men and keep another 4,000 in place. The local militia was called up, and notices were sent out for volunteer nurses, as they expected a fierce battle and heavy casualties once the British realized what had happened. On the night of March 4th, the fortifications, men, and heavy guns were moved to Dorchester Heights, hiding behind the hay bales, while a cannonade pummeled Boston. The fortifications were completely erected by daybreak on March 5th. One British officer noted with surprise, This morning at daybreak, we discovered two redoubts on the hills of Dorchester Point, and two smaller works on their flanks. They were all raised during the night, with an expedition equal to that of a genie belonging to Aladdin's wonderful lamp. By this time, General Gage had returned to England, and General William Howe, who had led the British to victory at Bunker Hill, had taken command of the British forces in America. Shocked by the sudden appearance of the Continentals on the Heights, and well aware of the threat it posed, Howe ordered the Heights to be shelled. Unfortunately for the British, their cannons could not be elevated high enough to reach the American positions. Frustrated, but determined to remove the Americans from the Heights, Howe and his army boarded ships at noon, planning to attack once night fell. But the weather turned against the British, and after much deliberation, Howe decided not to waste the lives of his men and possibly his career. Instead, the British evacuated Boston, and Howe sent word to Washington that if he and his men were allowed to leave peacefully, they would not burn the city when they left. Washington agreed. Not only did Howe have to evacuate his army, but also loyalists that feared for their lives if they remained in Boston. 120 ships were loaded with over 11,000 people, including 667 women and 553 children, and finally set sail under the command of General Howe's older brother, the Admiral Lord Richard Howe, on St. Patrick's Day. Cheers went up from the American troops, and people on the shore wept with joy as the British fleet sailed away. Surely it is the Lord's doings, and it is marvelous to our eyes, Abigail Adams wrote. While his army moved into Boston, 
Washington remained in Cambridge to attend a church service and thank God for the victory. The chaplain chose a verse from Exodus he thought was fitting. The Egyptians said, Let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians. But Washington knew that the Lord had not drowned Howe and his redcoats in the Atlantic, as he had drowned Israel's oppressors in the Red Sea. Nor did he believe that Howe had sailed for England with his tail tucked between his legs. The question, however, was where had the fleet gone? The most likely destinations were New York or Philadelphia, and Washington suspected the former. In fact, he had already dispatched an advance force to meet the British there. Once Boston was secured, Washington led the remainder of his army southward. He was determined to beat the British fleet to New York, and the Continentals hurried south, marching five to six miles each morning before they even ate breakfast. The forced march paid off as the army arrived in New York before the British. Washington was eager to defend the city, but since the British Navy controlled the water, that task was nearly impossible. While Washington and his army waited for the British in New York, the Continental Congress furiously debated in Philadelphia. The matter before them was independence from Great Britain. Thomas Paine's recently published pamphlet, Common Sense, arguing that the connections between America and Great Britain made no sense, had made a great impression among the delegates. Declaring their independence was no simple task, however. The stakes were deadly serious, as what they contemplated was treason against the crown. Of course, hadn't they already committed treason? Weren't they already bound for the gallows if caught? Benjamin Franklin knew that they were. He also realized that any declaration of independence had to be unanimous, for as he famously told his fellow delegates, we must indeed all hang together, or most assuredly, we shall all hang separately. The Congress decided to hand the matter over to a committee to draft a proposed declaration. The committee included Franklin, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, Roger Sherman, and Robert Livingston. Franklin had no desire to draft the declaration himself and was happy to hand the task off to another. John Adams deferred to Jefferson, declaring that he can write ten times better than I. Jefferson accepted the assignment reluctantly. He had a lot of other things on his mind. Chief among them was his wife's health. Jefferson had spent the winter and much of the spring in Monticello. While there, his mother had died and his wife had grown very ill in childbirth. Jefferson himself had suffered migraines so badly that his planned return in April had been delayed until May. Besides, he did not want to be in Philadelphia at all. He had tried to convince the legislature to recall him to Virginia where he could work on what he thought was a much more important task of drafting the Virginia Constitution. Though Benjamin Franklin had no desire to draft the Declaration, he was still very much involved in his writing. Jefferson would send him finished sections, asking that Franklin critique it and make suggestions. Franklin dealt gently with Jefferson's prose while tweaking portions that needed slightly different wording. The Continental Congress was much more harsh. After multiple revisions, the Continental Congress finally approved the Declaration of Independence on July 4, 1776. Its beautiful prose begins so famously, stating, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, 
liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. This American creed, as Pulitzer Prize-winning author Joseph J. Ellis referred to it, has defined what America is as a nation for nearly two and a half centuries. Its beautiful prose explained quite plainly the meaning and source of American liberty. It explains the American belief that governments are instituted to protect the rights of the people, the same people that grant the government its powers. The Declaration has, of course, come under fire in the last couple of decades, with some pointing out that these God-given rights only applied to land-owning white males. This was true at the time, but misses the larger picture. The Declaration of Independence was simply a single step in making America and the world a better place. No, America was not born perfect on July 4, 1776. But wealthy white males ruled throughout Europe as well. What America did in 1776 was eliminate the notion of noble birth. It was not the blood that ran through one's veins that mattered, but rather what a person did with his or her life. This was an important first step in securing freedom for people all over the world. More steps would certainly be necessary, and we will see how they unfolded as America evolved. Joseph J. Ellis explained this evolution very well in his book American Sphinx, The Character of Thomas Jefferson. The entire history of liberal reform in America can be written as a process of discovery within Jefferson's words of a spiritually sanctioned mandate for ending slavery, providing the rights of citizenship to blacks and women, justifying welfare programs for the poor, and expanding individual freedoms. When the news of the Declaration of Independence reached Washington and New York on July 9th, he realized that this was just the sort of thing he needed to give his weary army a fresh incentive. That evening, the Continental Army mustered onto the commons to hear the Declaration read aloud. The air was jubilant. Soldiers and New Yorkers together rushed down Broadway to Bowling Green, where they pulled down the statue of George III mounted upon his steed. They even chopped the statue's metal head from its body and mounted it on a pike to be displayed outside of a tavern where cheerful men and women drank to the new nation. Of course, it is one thing to declare independence. It's quite another to actually achieve it. To truly become independent, General Washington and his ragtag army would have to defeat a much more powerful and experienced British military. In fact, Three days after the reading of the Declaration, Lord Howe, whose fleet had sat observing the Colonials for some time, decided to remind New York and the Continental Army that they had not won their independence yet. Two British ships, the HMS Phoenix and Rose, sailed up the harbor, past Lower Manhattan, and into the mouth of the Hudson River, where they opened fire, shelling the city and causing panic in the streets as people fled the cannonballs raining down on them. The American batteries along the Hudson River returned fire, with the artillery at Fort George firing first, upon the command of a 19-year-old captain named Alexander Hamilton. Hamilton had been a student at King's College, now known as Columbia, when the hostilities had begun a year earlier. He dropped out of school, 
joined the New York militia, raised a company of artillery, and was named its captain. Hamilton was not a native New Yorker, however. In fact, he was not even born anywhere in the 13 colonies. Hamilton had been born out of wedlock in the city of Charlestown on the island of Nevis in the British West Indies. It was a hellish place, with the colonists there described by one Anglican priest as whole shiploads of pickpockets, whores, rogues, vagrants, thieves, sodomites, and other filth and cutthroats of society. The priest lamented that the outcasts that inhabited the island were not bad enough for the gallows and yet too bad to live among the virtuous countrymen at home. It was in this environment that a French beauty named Rachel Fawcett had an illegitimate child named Alexander with a Scottish drunkard named James Hamilton. Alexander was the third son of his mother and the second of his mother and father together. While young Alexander did not grow up in a world of gentlemen aristocrats like George Washington, his paternal grandfather was a Scottish laird, and his mother had inherited a small sugar plantation and several slaves from her father. The drunk Scotsman soon abandoned his son and child's mother, and she was forced to raise Alexander alone, his illegitimate status making acceptance difficult. Unfortunately, Rachel died while Alexander was still young, and he and his brother James were orphaned. Not only were they orphaned, but they were disinherited, as their older half-brother Peter inherited all of Rachel's estate. After being passed around to relatives, Alexander was eventually taken in by a well-off merchant named Thomas Stevens. There is some evidence that Stevens might have actually been Alexander's biological father. In fact, it would explain why Stevens took in Alexander, but did not also take in his brother James. In any event, Stevens recognized Hamilton's intelligence and talents, and with the assistance of some other wealthy sponsors, paid Hamilton's way to New York to attend King's College. Hamilton did exceptionally well at school, and his low birth made him always intent on proving himself and bestowing on him a burning need to always impress others. While at King's College, Hamilton and his friends formed a literary society, and in 1774, Hamilton first took pen to paper as a political writer. Responding to a series of pamphlets promoting the Loyalist cause, Hamilton wrote a full vindication of the measures of Congress and the farmer refuted. Though he believed in the revolutionary cause, Hamilton saved the school's president, a British Loyalist, from an angry mob. Before we continue, I wanted to pause and take a moment to thank you for listening to this podcast. I realize that you have a lot of options to occupy your time, and I'm truly grateful and humbled that you chose Home of the Brave. As you can imagine, it has taken a lot of time, energy, and money to create a podcast such as this, and I really need your support. Please share it with your friends, subscribe, and write a review. Also, I'd like to ask you to purchase the ebook that this podcast is based on. You can find Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic by Christopher Vale, that's V-A-L-E, at Amazon.com or on my website at ChristopherVale.net. I have two more books that I hope to write and record as podcasts to tell the story of America up through the end of the Cold War. 
but I won't be able to do so without your generous support. Thank you again. And now, back to Home of the Brave. On July 12, 1776, Hamilton found himself defending New York Island, as it was called at the time, from the British Navy. The two ships sailed up the river and out of sight with barely any damage. The only deaths of the entire encounter had come when some drunk and inexperienced colonial artillerymen blew up their own cannon, killing six men. The following day, a boat rode ashore under a white flag, carrying a letter addressed to George Washington Esquire. The boat was met by Joseph Reed and Henry Knox, who promptly proclaimed that no such person was in the Continental Army. There was a General George Washington, but he refused to accept the letter for this George Washington Esquire. Three days later, the messenger again tried to deliver the letter, this time addressed to George Washington Esquire, etc., etc., etc. Again, the Continentals refused to accept it. Finally, a Captain Nisbet Balfour was sent to verbally ask whether General Washington would receive Colonel James Patterson, the adjutant general, to General Howe. The Continentals agreed. Colonel Patterson met with Washington and informed the general that both Lord Howe and his brother General Howe had been appointed by the king to be commissioners to accommodate this unhappy dispute. In other words, they had the power to negotiate terms to return the colonies peacefully back to Great Britain. Washington replied by informing the colonel that he was not himself vested with those same powers from the Congress. Furthermore, Washington informed the colonel that it was his understanding that the only power the Howes had on the matter were to grant pardons. Washington made it clear that he and his officers were not interested. Those who have committed no fault want no pardon, he explained. Then he struck the heart of the matter. We are only defending what we deem our indisputable rights. With that, Colonel Patterson took his leave. Meanwhile, more British ships were joining Lord Howe's fleet every day. By August, another 100 ships had arrived, reinforcing the British army, which had spent the summer on Staten Island. On August 12th, a hundred more ships arrived. The people of New York stood on the roofs of their homes to watch the mighty fleet come into the harbor. The British now had the largest fleet ever seen in American waters, and 32,000 troops had landed on Staten Island. To put that into perspective, America's largest city at the time, Philadelphia, only had a population of 30,000 people. Reinforced and ready for battle, Howe's army went on the offensive and pushed the Continentals from Long Island. Washington realized that his army would not be able to face such an enormous, well-supplied, well-trained, and disciplined British force. He wrote Congress to explain that he would be fighting a war of posts, a war fought from strong fortifications. It would be defensive, and he would try to avoid any general action. Washington was no longer the arrogant, rash, glory-seeking youth of the French and Indian War. He was now a much more mature, prudent, and studied tactician. General Howe had no desire to fight a war of posts. As commander of the much larger and more disciplined force, he obviously hoped to face Washington in the open field where he could annihilate the Continental Army. Thus, Howe set about maneuvering Washington to face him. In October, Howe got his wish when Washington decided to abandon New York City after Congress informed him 
that they did not demand he attempt to hold it. Howe met Washington at White Plains, New York, as the Continentals attempted to retreat from the city. The British Redcoats were joined by well-trained, disciplined, and extremely fierce Hessian mercenaries. These were German conscripts forced into service by the various German princes, and then rented out to anyone that could pay. In fact, it was not unheard of to have Hessians fighting on different sides of the same war. King George leased tens of thousands of Hessians to suppress the colonials. The British and Hessians attacked the colonials and took up defensive positions on the high ground in the small town. Despite having better ground, the rebels were defeated by the better trained British forces, but not before inflicting twice as many losses on the redcoats as they sustained. Following the battle, the two sides watched each other for a few days, with neither attacking the other. Then on the morning of November 5th, the British army began to move. Washington correctly feared that Howe was taking his troops to New Jersey. But before he did, Howe wanted to clear the Hudson River of the American fortifications. The Continental Army had built two forts to defend the Hudson River from the British Navy. The men christened one fort Fort Washington and the other Fort Lee after the former British officer turned rebel general. The forts were nothing sophisticated, just mounds of earth piled up and equipped with cannons. General Howe wrote to Colonel McGaw, commander of Fort Washington, demanding he surrender the fort. Colonel McGaw replied defiantly that he was determined to defend the post to the last extremity. The British attacked the fort with four times the number of men as were defending it. The fighting was fierce as Hessian troops fought their way up the hill through American lines, driving the defenders back inside the fort. Inside, the colonials found themselves with little room to move. The British demanded surrender, and this time, McGaw agreed. The loss was a tremendous blow to the Continental Army, costing them nearly 3,000 men killed or captured, along with much-needed tools, arms, and ammunition. General Howe then set his sights on capturing Fort Lee on the other side of the river. The next night, as rain poured from the sky, 4,000 redcoats rode across the Hudson from Fort Washington to Fort Lee attempting to surprise the Continentals in the early morning hours. It was the British who were surprised when they found the fort abandoned, with breakfast still cooking on the fires. American spies had warned the rebels of the impending attack, and Washington had ordered the fort evacuated before the British could capture it. While tools and arms were captured, the only soldiers that remained in the fort were a dozen drunk men who had gotten into the fort's rum supply. Washington and the Continentals fled New York, abandoning the colony for New Jersey. Experience and overwhelming force had paid off for the British, but the rebels were not defeated just yet. Washington had successfully escaped to fight another day. The Americans had abandoned New York in less than 24 hours. It would take the British 10 days to do the same. The Continental Army was down to a mere 3,000 ragged, tired, and mostly shoeless men as it fled across New Jersey. Most of the soldiers were older or younger than Washington would have preferred, in poor health and poorer spirits. They were a beaten army, outmaneuvered and outnumbered, fleeing the Hessian mercenaries, a brutal enemy that sought to destroy them. As the Hessians pursued the Continentals, they raped and pillaged the plantations of New Jersey, often robbing families of all they possessed. 
one of Washington's most capable generals, Nathaniel Greene, wrote to his wife about the atrocities visited on the civilian population by the Hessians. British loyalists lead the relentless foreigners to the houses of their neighbors and strip poor women and children of everything they have to eat or wear. And after plundering them in this sort, the brutes often ravish the mothers and daughters and compel the fathers and sons to behold their brutality. Even the British and Americans still loyal to the crown were appalled at the viciousness of the Hessians. Major Stephen Kimball, a loyalist serving in the British Army, wrote, The Hessians outrageously licentious and cruel to such a degree as to threaten with death all such as dare obstruct them in their depredations. Howe's army forced the Continentals to retreat across the Delaware River into Pennsylvania, and Washington fretted day and night that Howe would soon cross as well, heading for Philadelphia. Howe was in no hurry, however, and instead of marching on the American capital, decided to winter in New York City and resume hostilities in the spring. This was unexpected, as it was just mid-December. Perhaps it was Howe's arrogance that he had the Colonials beat. Perhaps he believed that, after a harsh winter, the far less disciplined Continental Army would simply disintegrate. Either way, Providence was certainly smiling on the Americans once again, as Howe might have finished the war once and for all had he pushed on. Howe left military outposts in New Jersey, including Hessians in Trenton, while he and the majority of his forces returned to the comforts of New York City. General Cornwallis, who had become Howe's most able general, even returned to England to visit his sick wife. Meanwhile, in Pennsylvania, Washington and his officers were restless and knew all too well that they were in danger of losing much of their army when enlistments ran out at the end of the year. Moreover, the people of the colonies were losing faith in the cause and support for the war was beginning to dry up. If the Continentals retired to winter camp now, beaten and dispirited, Washington doubted he would have any army left come spring. Washington knew he needed to do something bold and unexpected, and on Christmas Eve, 1776, called a meeting of his generals. They decided to break the accepted norms of 18th century warfare and attack the enemy during Christmas. Their target was Trenton, which served two purposes. First, it would create a moral victory throughout the colonies, and second, it would allow the colonials to exact revenge over the barbarous Hessians. The following night, on Christmas, Washington's army crossed the Delaware River on giant flat-bottom boats. The weather turned against them, and the river filled with sheets of ice as freezing rain pelted them from above. The ice made the passing deadly difficult, which Washington knew full well as he had nearly died in similar conditions crossing the Allegheny River years before while carrying the French response to Governor Dinwiddie. Once the army finally reached the other side of the river, they were three hours behind schedule and were forced to march over ice-covered roads in frigid weather. Some soldiers literally froze to death. The benefit of the weather, of course, was that it added to the enemy's confidence that they would not be attacked. Who would cross the river with an army of that size in weather like that. And on Christmas, the attack, which was supposed to take place under cover of darkness, actually began two hours late and after sunrise, as Nathaniel Green led his men rushing out of the woods and moving quickly across the fields through the driving snow. 
The snow was so thick that the Hessian guards could not even make out the rebels at first. Then the Americans opened fire. The Hessian guards returned fire and fell back into the town. Hessian troops poured out into the streets, dressing as they ran. By the time they had formed into ranks, the rebels had moved their cannon into position and opened fire on them. The cannon fire decimated the Hessian ranks and sent the mercenaries fleeing. Then the Americans charged with fixed bayonets. The two sides fought hand to hand in the blizzard-like conditions. The Americans seized a Hessian field gun and turned it on the mercenaries. The Hessian commander, Colonel Rawl, attempted to regroup with his men just outside of town, but he was shot down, mortally wounded. The Hessians were quickly surrounded and surrendered. The entire battle had taken less than an hour, and not a single American lost his life. The rebels had captured 900 prisoners and six artillery pieces. The victory raised not only the spirits of the men, but also those of the colonies. Washington declared the victory not his, but his men's, and to show his appreciation, he promised each man would receive a share of the cash value of the arms, horses, etc. captured at Trenton. The Battle of Trenton was George Washington's first victory of the Revolution, and it came at the perfect time. Thank you for listening to Home of the Brave, Book One, The Republic. For notes and citations, or to support this podcast, please purchase the ebook available at ChristopherVale.net and Amazon.com.